I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Amos. It's in your Old Testament. It's near the back. It's what's called one of the minor prophets. And uh, we finished up Hosea last week, and now we're actually, and now we're moving into uh, the book of Amos. The first time I heard this, I wondered about it. Someone said to me, everyone, whether they can clearly explain it or not, has a world view. You see, a world view is largely a set of unwritten principles by which every individual lives his or her life. Let me give you a couple of worldview statements. There is a set of absolute truth by which we must live. That's a worldview statement. But there's a converse statement. There is no such thing as absolute truth. I determine my own truth just as you determine your own truth. That's a worldview statement. All religions are equally valid as long as they help the adherent be a better person. That's a worldview statement. The Bible is inspired by God and is our supreme authority in matters of faith and practice. A worldview statement. It's the most important thing is to be true to yourself. I, I heard a, a pastor, a pastor that I have a lot of respect for, his name is Kevin DeYoung. He actually wrote the little booklet that we gave out at Christmas, at Easter time. And uh, he spoke at a commencement announcement, uh, commencement address. And, and I went and actually listened to his commencement address. And, and his first thing was, don't be true to yourself. Because the reality is his worldview is be true to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's where your true self is. We all have a worldview. A worldview defines what is real to us. It guides us to separate us what we believe is right and wrong. It gives meaning to our lives. And see, if you are here this morning or in my hearing this morning and you claim to have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you desire to follow him, then your worldview should be a God-centered worldview. A God-centered worldview is really not very complicated. You know, God knows us. He created us. So he keeps things pretty simple for us. And it's simply this. I would say God-centered worldview says, since the creator God loves me and through Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin, then I am responsible before him to love him and to love others. In that worldview, there are some fundamental truths. One is God exists. Two is God is the creator, so he has authority. Three is God has expressed his love to me, and as a result, I am to love him and love all that he's created. You see, if you let that premise guide you, you will understand what it means to walk with God. There are all kinds of nuances to that, but those are basic guiding principles. God's people in the Old Testament, the Jews, were the ones that he specifically chose to live out this worldview. 
He set up for them a system for living, set up beginning in Genesis and going all the way through the book of Deuteronomy, and it showed them that he had chosen them. It showed them that he had protected them. And that book, that first five books of the Bible shows his desire for them, and it shows the manner in which he wanted them to live that would make them different than their neighbors. He wanted them to be an example of what it meant in this world to love God and love others. But along the way, they adopted the worldview of their neighboring nations. They bought into a prevailing thought. If one God is good, then two gods are even better. And hey, why not add a third or a fourth or a fifth? We need a God for every element because one God can't handle everything. So we need a God of rain and a God of fertility and a God of the sun and a God of the earth. And they bought into that philosophy. They bought into the philosophy that when they were prosperous, then they were in good grace with God and as a result were invincible. And they bought into the idea that, yes, we've been specifically chosen by God. We can read that in our law. We can, we've been told that all of our lives. So it's obvious that since we've been chosen by God, nothing we do will ever bring suffering on us because we're chosen by God and he will always protect us. God was patient. God was faithful. God warned his people time and again that the covenant, or word we might use, the contract that he had made with them had many, many blessings. But also there were curses or penalties for violating the contract, for violating the covenant. You know, it's interesting. When somebody signs a contract of any kind, we never sign that contract thinking we're going to violate the terms. You didn't sit down at the bank one day and fill out papers until your hand cramped up making signatures saying you're going to pay off this loan someday of your house thinking that you would someday not be able to pay it off. We, we never think that way. I'm going to manage it. It'll be good. And yet, when there's an issue... And someone brings us back to the finer points of the contract. Oh boy, now there's trouble. The nation of Israel had violated the terms of the covenant. And God, through the minor prophets, is beginning to call them into account. As we've already understood in the section of the Bible that we're in called the Minor Prophets, the last 12 books of your Old Testament, the nation Israel has already been divided. Uh, you find that story in, in the book of 1 Kings chapter 12. There, there was a division and we'll talk more about that in a minute. The nation that we talk about it, and when we get to this part of the Bible, there's Israel, also poetically known as Ephraim, and then there's Judah. And right after Solomon was the king, his son Rehoboam took the king. And Rehoboam went to the older men, the wiser men, and said, what should I do? And they said, take it easy on the people. And he went to his young friends and they went, show them who's boss. And he took their advice and a man by the name of Jeroboam took ten tribes and they moved all the way up north and set up their own kingdom. And 
we're going to look at one person, a guy by the name of Amos, who sensed the call of God in his life, and he went north from a little village called Tekoa, which was about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, all the way up north to Samaria, and he brought about God's message to the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos is about God's issues with the northern kingdom. And, and in this book, we're going to learn as we go through this in the next couple of weeks, we're going to learn what God thinks about how the poor should be treated. We're going to learn what God thinks about oppression and the misuse of wealth. And we will see parallels to our own circumstances. And yet in the middle of it all, we're going to see a God who once again desires more than anything else that those who claim to be his children live in a way that reflects a heart relationship with him. Look at Amos chapter 1, verse 1 this morning. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel Two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, the son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. I'm not going to go into it here. There's a ton of history in that verse right there. Real quick, I've told you this before. Uzziah was the king of Israel. In fact, you learn about him uh, or learn about how great he was when Isaiah, in Isaiah 6 says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Uzziah had been a really good king up until the end. He had strengthened the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. He had fortified the cities. He had built weaponry that would protect them. He was, economically, they were sound. They were doing great. It, it was what some called the golden era of Judah. But interestingly enough, in the north, Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, had done the same thing for Israel. Things were good. The, the economy was humming along. People were doing great. And so here's Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The best we can tell is Tekoa is about nine miles, 16 kilometers, south and a little east of Jerusalem. And you got to understand, people didn't leave home a lot back then. You know, we travel all the time. You know, he probably went the nine, ten miles up to Jerusalem to take some sheep to market, or we'll find in uh, Amos 7.14, he was also a fig farmer. So maybe he took some figs to market, but that was it. You stayed home. And so here he was, he's this guy, this shepherd, and, and, and he was one of the shepherds of Tekoa, and we get the, the idea that he was probably like a middle manager. There were some younger shepherds underneath him. Uh, if we understand history, his dad was probably a shepherd and a fig farmer, and his grandpa was probably a shepherd and a fig farmer, and maybe even great-grandpa. And so this was his life. He, He's just a, a regular guy from a small town south of Jerusalem. I don't think Amos one day was sitting under a fig tree saying, you know, I think I'd like to be a prophet. I think, I, you know, I'm just feeling, I, I, I'm going I'm to go check out prophet schools. Where can I go learn to be a prophet? 
Now, I think he somehow heard from God. And he was obedient. You see, Amos was just a regular guy who loved God, sought to be obedient to God, and was happy serving God, whether it was tending sheep or harvesting figs or bringing up younger shepherds. He was fine. I believe Amos was one of those guys that practiced fair business practices. And one day, God taps him on the shoulder. I don't know how, we're not told. But one day he got the sense that he needed to travel 120 miles from home, which was light years away. And God said, I have a job for you, Amos. I want you to leave home. I want you to go to what had now become a foreign country. I want you to share my message of impending judgment. By the way, you're not going to be popular. We find that later on. You could say, in a sense, Amos was an early missionary. I, I spent a while just looking at that verse. I, I love the history behind it. I, I could go on about that. But it struck me this way. Amos is a regular guy because God uses regular people to do his work. God can use you. God wants to use you. Now, I was talking to a friend one day, and, and she was telling me about just life in her office where she worked. And she was sharing with me some of the conversations she had that past week at her workplace. She had listened to a co-worker share struggles. She had listened to another co-worker just celebrate something their grandkids had done. And she had, she had just been sought out for an opinion on this or that. And as I listened to her talk about this, I remember saying something to the, this effect. I think you did more pastoral work at your office this week than I did as a pastor all week long. You were doing pastoral work. You were caring for people. You were showing empathy. You were listening. God uses regular people. I know I've told you this story once before. It was some time ago. When I was dating Charlene, uh, she would get these, uh, and we were still students at Moody, she was a senior when I was a freshman because I went for the experience. We're only a week apart, so, you know. Anyway, she would get these notes in the mail every now and then, and she would be delighted by them. And it would be a little note kind of in an older handwritten scrawl and a little tract of encouragement. And she goes, oh, it's from Aunt Jenny. And finally, one day, I had the privilege of meeting Aunt Jenny. Charlene and I actually went down to Bolingbrook, where she lived, and, and we, we stopped in to see her. And um, Charlene asked her, how, you know, it was obvious she had long since retired. How are you keeping busy these days, Aunt Jenny? And she said, well, I have my literature ministry, and I go to church, and I always go to the nursery, and I take care of the babies. You know, I'm 21 years old, right? I went, literature ministry. You, know, you write these little notes. Come on. Don't call it a literature ministry. We get married. We have kids. We eventually move back up this way. And uh, Aunt Jenny passes away. And we went down to the church where they had a reception and a memorial service. And I'm just wandering around. We're there. You know, we're just listening we actually went with a former missionary of Pleasant Hill Community Church, Phyllis Ross. That'll be a name that some of you know. And, uh, and also we were talking to people. And as I listened to people talk, 
as I listened to the legacy of Aunt Jenny, people of all ages were talking about how great it was to get a note in the mail unexpected from Aunt Jenny with a word of encouragement, a scripture verse, a way that she was praying for them. And the other thing people talked about is how she loved the babies and she cared for the babies in the nursery and what a blessing it was when you were a young mother at that church to turn your new baby over to Aunt Jenny and you knew she would care for that child as if it were her own. Regular people not making big headlines. Those are the people God wants to use. A regular person faithfully doing what God put on her heart to do. Amos is just a regular guy. God put on his heart to go do something, and he did. And we get the beginning of his message in chapter 1 and verse 2. And let me just say this before I launch into this. Amos had this innate ability to work the crowd. Okay, you'll see what I mean in a minute. Because he does something completely unexpected. And I believe by the time we're done with chapter 2, you're going to see that he had the crowd in Samaria eating out of his hand until he was ready to spring them with truth. Amos goes up to uh, Samaria, up to, uh, up to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he said... The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. Amos' message begins with a declaration. He describes the Lord God as a great lion who's roaring. And when you hear the roar of God, you should listen. The roar of this lion is so powerful that it thunders and it can dry up crops. It's a roar you don't want to ignore. By the way, according to the Cleveland Zoological Society, a lion's roar can be heard from up to five miles away. So if that's the case with a lion in the African bush, just imagine the roar of our God. It's not something you want to ignore. And Amos is bringing this roar uh, to the northern kingdom. But it's not just for the northern kingdom. God's voice is for all people. It's for all nations. And so Amos begins. And, and he begins here in verse 3. And he says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, for even for four, I will not relent. Now, Amos uses this phrase throughout this first part. For three sins, even for four. You're going to look at that and say, but he only lists one thing. So maybe Amos needs a little bit of remedial math work. But that's an idiom. It's an idiom basically saying this. There are an indefinite number of violations. I'm just going to point out the worst one. And all the rest follow from that. And just imagine Amos starts, and this is, uh, he starts with the enemies. And so you can imagine, and back, by the way, you know, we go downtown Chicago and there might be somebody out there doing like a street preaching thing and people just kind of walk by and ignore him. 
But in an era where there was no internet, no TV, no nothing, I mean, a, a preacher that came and could speak and, and an orator, he'd draw a crowd. And he starts out, for three sins and for four uh, of Damascus, I will not relent. And they're going, yeah, those Damascus, those Arameans, they need this. Yeah, you go for it, Amos. And he says, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who's in the valley of Avon, the one who holds the scepter of Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. That All of that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Let me just summarize it. This is the Arameans. They're atrocities. They slaughtered the innocent on the threshing floors of a place called Gilead. God says, I'm going to see to it that your cities are burned. I'm going to see to it that your gates are destroyed. And in the ancient world, when an army came and destroyed the gates of the city, that was a sign of complete dominance. I'm going to see that your people are sent back to where they came from. And you know what? It all happened. It all happened Roughly 100 years later, in 732 BCE, a guy by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria went into the city of Damascus, the capital of the Arameans, and just totally leveled it. He goes on in verse 6, he talks about the sins of Gaza. These are the Philistines. You know, if you studied the Bible at all, you know that David and the Philistines were not buds. They did not get along. The Philistines were always just this burr under the saddle of God's people. He says, for three sins and four of Gaza, I will not relent. And and what did they do? The Philistines would capture rural communities in times of relative peace, and they would sell the entire town into slavery to Edom. We'll talk about Edom in a minute. They would take advantage of defenseless people for fun and profit. God says they're going to be utterly destroyed. And they began that that destruction began again during the Assyrians, but when you get to the time of the Maccabees, which is in what we call that intertestamental period between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew in 168 to 134 BC Philistines were wiped out. Then he goes to another group, beginning in verse 9, for three sins of Tyre, even even for four, I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. So what's the difference between Tyre and Philistines? Tyre would go into a community and broker a deal with them. That's what that commitment of brotherhood. And then once they got that deal brokered, they would violate the treaty of brotherhood and they would completely sell that community to slay, into slavery. Tyre had been a friend of God's people. Some of the, the lumber, the wood that, got, that built Solomon's temper, temple came from Lebanon and some of this stuff came from Tyre. They had been there and, and yet... God said, I'm going to make sure that you are destroyed. I'm going to see that you are consumed. And by the way, in 332 BCE, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great marched in and destroyed the city of Tyre. Now, we've seen Edom twice. Edom were descendants of Esau, Esau, the brother of Jacob. And there should have been a little family commitment there, right? There should have been some... You know, hey, we're brothers. You know, family is everything, people tell me. 
But we see here, beginning in verse 11, three sins and four of Edom. Edom not only purchased those slaves from the Philistines, but at times they pursued and they fought against Israel, and they never, ever, ever came to the defense of the descendants of Jacob like a good brother should. God says, they're going to be, I'm going to send fire to Teman that will consume the fortresses of Bozrah. By the way, Edom had this city called Petra that was supposed to be impenetrable. But you know what? Beginning with the Assyrians in the 8th century, by the 5th century, it had become a wasteland and was inhabited by an Arabian tribe in 400 BCE. Edom was wiped out. The next two groups are Ammon and Moab. And uh, Ammon and Moab were the descendants from Abraham's nephew Lot. Ammon was guilty of war against Gilead, again, attacking defenseless pregnant women. Now, Gilead was located, it was the tribe of Manasseh, settled in Gilead because that's where it was good grazing for their sheep. It would be east of the Jordan River, and it was there that they set up this monument so that you'll never forget what God did. Ammon goes in, and they, they attack defenseless pregnant women. It was a move designed to terrorize and demoralize the enemy. And God says, I'll see to it that your capital cities are utterly destroyed and burned. And once again, the Assyrians, 734 B.C.E., Wipe out Ammon. Moab showed no respect for the dead. And so God says again, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, that everything that you have is going to be burned to ashes. And they fell to Tiglath-Pileser, 734 BCE. And you know, you could get down this whole list and you could go, but wait a minute, Pastor Scott. These are pagan nations. They had no idea of what God required. But we serve a creator God who has decreed respect for humanity and basic human rights. And I think the lesson I get as I look through all of this is simply this. God holds everyone accountable for their actions. We're all accountable before God. And as I look through this, I realize that no nation, then or now, will escape the hand of God for human rights abuses. God holds all nations accountable. Paul would write in Romans 13 that all government is ordained by God, but implied within that is that all government is therefore accountable to God. Well, you can imagine the crowd. This guy, Amos, he's got it going on. Look at that. All of our enemies, they're going to be destroyed. This is going to be great for us. This is going to be really great for us. And then Amos does something that I think is a very bold move. You see it at the beginning of chapter, verse 4 of chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent. Whoa. You're now talking about your own people, dude. These are the people. You came from Judah. You're, 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 you're from Judah. Wow. What a bold move. You see, Judah had the law of God. They had the complete revelation of God at the time. 
God had told them how to live, how to survive in this world, to receive his blessings. Judah was the site of the temple in Jerusalem where, where you went to worship God. And Judah had all that they needed. But instead, they, they followed lies, lies that were represented by the false gods. And the people had been repeatedly said, stay away from them. He said, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, they've not kept his degrees. They've gone astray by, they've been led astray by false gods. The gods of their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume, consume the fortress of Jerusalem. Interesting. For the nation of Judah, their punishment was delayed largely due to kings such as Uzziah, who largely followed the way of the Lord until the end when he thought he could offer incense on the altar. Following him, a, a king by the name of Hezekiah. And so because they led the nation to the best of their ability in following God, he, he delayed. But in 586 BCE, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. The walls were wiped out. The temple was destroyed and laid waste because they had not followed God. Let me just simply say this. God expects you me to act on the truth he has given us. God expects me to act on the truth he's given me. Yeah, I know I've spent 30 plus years studying this book. You say, I don't know as much as you do. You know the truth God wants you to have. And there are fundamental truths God expects us to respond to. One of the, those that we repeat all the time is God expects me to love God with all my heart, soul, and strength and to love my neighbors, myself, and anybody who crosses my path is my neighbor. God expects that. We are responsible before God to act on the knowledge he's given us. We have the Bible. So it doesn't say, well, I, hey, if I just don't read the Bible, then I'm not responsible. The fact is, so many of us have been taught truth. We have the ability to read. We're responsible to read. We're responsible before God for the revelation he's given us. Remember when I first started this series, I reminded you that God is serious about obedience to his word. You see, the grid of God's word should be that which guides my decisions, my lifestyles, my daily choices. Our culture is loaded with lies that sound so good, and you and I can best discern those lies by acting on what God has already shown us in his word. Well, now, Amos is doing good with the crowd. He's been working them. He has them eaten out of the palm of his hand. He's been working the crowd, and his final point of this very first sermon, he now calls out the nation of Israel. Can you imagine the silence of the crowd Whoa, wait, what? He's talking about us? Oh, we got Jeroboam too on the throne. Man, things are going great. What do you mean, us? I mentioned earlier, 1 Kings 12, Jeroboam set up a new worship. When, when he divided, he didn't want the people in the northern kingdom going back down to Jerusalem and worshiping at the temple because then they might change their allegiance. So he set up two places of worship, interestingly enough, with two golden calves. And that was where people to worship. And this was the new worship, the new way to worship. 
And, and you know, they, remember they had bought into this worldview that said, we're already God's chosen people. We do. We also have the promises from Abraham. And God's going to keep us. God won't harm us because he's going to protect us because we're descendants of Abraham. And the second one was when we're prosperous, God's pleased with us. Obviously, that's the case. And so we're prosperous right now, so it's all good. God's pleased with us. And in the remainder of chapter 2, Amos points out that issues aren't all good. In verses 6 through 16, he points out a bunch of things. We're going to summarize. He starts out for them. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. Why one? They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They were oppressing the poor. You see, a good man would borrow money. And the lender knew that he was good for it, but the lender would still sell him into slavery to get what he owed now. I want my money now. I'm not waiting for the terms of the loan. I want my money now. A poor person couldn't even afford to buy a, 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 a pair of sandals, a needy, and, and so they were put into slavery to pay for their sandals. And God had said very clearly in Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, that you're to take care of the poor, that you're not to oppress the poor, that you're to meet their needs. When you harvested your fields, you were to leave a little bit on the edges so the poor could glean and have what they needed. That was God's heart. Morally, the nation had fallen into a total failure. Notice here at the end of verse 7, uh, first, all of verse 7, they trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. Morally, the nation was bankrupt. Uh, a poor person who went into court to try to get justice, to appeal to the court for relief, would find out that the court was already in cahoots with the wealthy and they were not even listening to them and sometimes they would throw the book at them, as they say. Um, a father and a son in the same household would abuse the servant girls. They go on. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine as and wine taken as fine. So they would, the, the law said, if you came to me and you asked for me to give you some money to help you out because you were struggling and you didn't have anything to give me as collateral, you could give me your outer garment, your coat. Now that's all well and good in the daytime when things are warm. But the Palestinian nights get really cold. And the law said that at night, I was to go back to you and give you back that coat so that you could stay warm at night. I was to treat you with grace. And what was happening in Israel was they would take the coat and they would keep it and then they would go to the altar and pretend to worship God wearing what amounted to a stolen garment. And they would... They would take the wine that was supposed to be for worship that was taken in fines and away and offerings and they would just party with it. God's response is, what makes you think you're so great? God says, I brought you up out of Egypt. Pick it up, verse 9. I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were as tall as strong as oaks. I destroyed their fruit above their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you for 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. God says, what makes you so great to think, if 
I destroyed the Amorites, I can destroy you too. God says, I raised up prophets, verse 11, from your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? Yes, it is. He goes on, he says, you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. A Nazarite was someone that took a vow before God. And usually to show that they had taken this vow before God, they made two commitments. One, oftentimes, to not cut the hair of their head. And secondly, to not drink any wine. And the nation of Israel came along and it's like they said, nope, you're going to drink wine. Here, take it. And, 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 and then God would send his prophets to say, no, don't do this. And they would say, stop prophesying. Get out of here. They're actually going to say that to Amos later on. And God had been gracious to Israel in many ways. And God expects that we will treat others with the same grace he's shown us. That's, that's the, other, the thing that jumps out with me. God expects me to treat others with the same grace he has shown me. And God promises Israel, you are going to face the same things that you've meted out. You see, God expects you and me To be generous to others because he's been generous to us. God expects you and me to treat others with fairness because he's been fair to us. God expects us to honor the commitments we've made to others because when I make a commitment to someone else, I'm doing that before the Lord. God says, you know, you've trampled the poor. Verse 13, I'm going to crush you. You think you're strong and battle-tested and you think you're protected by your elite soldiers? I'm going to tell you the fastest of them not going to escape. God is going to judge his nation because they had broken his covenant. So what do we do with all this? Where do we bring it home? You see, one day this regular guy who lived in a little town that nobody ever paid much attention to sensed God calling him. And he stepped out in faith. He traveled 132 miles north over rough terrain. And he spoke to an entitled, complacent, privileged people and told them, God is holding you accountable. You see, God wants to use regular people. It's not always the educated and everything else. It's the regular people. There are people you can talk to that wouldn't listen to me at all, but they would listen to you. And God's standards do not change. He still holds us accountable for our actions, and I would add for our attitudes. He still expects that we'll live according to the truth available to us. He still expects that we'll treat others with the same grace we've received from him. These are non-negotiables with God. Don't think. That if you just prayed a prayer once when you were a kid, that nothing else is ever required of you before God. That was the starting line. That was not the finish line. You see, my grandson's being baptized today. And one of the things that I am so proud of my daughter and son-in-law for is that they've reminded him, this is just the starting point. The rest of your life is living for Christ. God expects you and me to learn what it means to live in obedience to him. He expects you and me to live 
counter to our culture and stand for what is right and just and honorable. And we have to be very discerning because sometimes people will say this is right and just and honorable, but it's right and just and honorable, but not according to the word of God. The message of Amos to us this morning is to rise above the siren call of our culture and follow God no matter what. Let's pray. Father, I've gone a long time and I could go more and I'm not as good as Amos at working the crowd, so we'll stop right here. And may we just take time to look inward and simply say, Lord, Am I following you? And then say, Lord, change me to be who you want me to be. We don't want to... The terms of the covenant are are different now. We, We don't have the same Old Testament covenant terms. But we have two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. May we focus on those. And we will have all that we need. And may we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.